Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy today. Lord, we are in need of much of your grace. And Father, without your mercy, who, who could stand? And Lord, we just thank you so much that we can gather uh, again today on this uh, beautiful Lord's Day. Lord, thank you that we have the sun. Um, we thank you that we have uh, times where if we, if we have been sick, well, we have relief for our sickness and Lord, we pray for all our families. Uh, we pray for everybody who's not feeling well today. Uh, pray for my family. Lord, I ask for Trish and pray that you would cause her to uh, be strengthened today and uh, for Eden as well. And uh, I just pray for our time together. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, give us understanding and insight into your word today. Uh, help us to comprehend uh, the great plan of redemption. Help us to understand the significance of Christ and His Spirit, and uh, help us to understand the relationship, Lord, between the Spirit and the Son, and what that means uh, for us, and what that means for theology, our theology, and our understanding of your scriptures. Help us, Lord, as we peer into these great mysteries, Lord, would all of this just be for one reason only, and that is to know you in a better way, uh, to to come into a deeper, more intimate communion with God. Uh, as we uh, look over and pour over these great mysteries, divine mysteries that you have given us, Lord, for our understanding, for our enrichment, and for our glory. We thank you, and we ask your help now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Well, today we are going to be looking at Christ uh, and the Spirit. And that is uh, the subject of today's Topic and what we want to do is look at, um, uh, I guess what we can say, uh, spirit and prophecy. Uh, that's where we want to uh, begin, and we want to look at Old Testament prophecy, and then maybe what you weren't expecting, New Testament uh, prophecy as it relates to these things. Not sure we're even going to get that far, to be quite honest with you, because I've got a lot of sort of introduction material uh, and things that I want to get to. Let me just say what I've been telling people in the hallway uh, before we started, and that is that I think that this is probably the most important study or Sunday school lesson I think I've ever taught in my life. The reason why uh, is because the Spirit uh, is so... uh, critical and important for uh, for our theology. Uh, when you think about the theology of the Spirit, what do you think about, uh, and when we talk about the theology of the Spirit, we're looking at terms like pneumatology, right? It comes from the Greek word pneuma, which means spirit, pneumatology, the theology of the Spirit. But when you think about pneumatology, the theology of the Spirit, what comes, to, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Anyone daring enough to take a stab at it? Yes, yes, anyone? God, okay, so you're thinking now of the deity of the Spirit, right? Anybody else? The gifts of the Spirit, so we're thinking about the gifts of the Spirit, <laughs> what the Spirit gives us, right? The things that He uh, grants. Okay, so then the, you're thinking about the Spirit and His work of redemption, really, right? Because how He contributed to the redemption that Christ wrought by raising him from the dead. Uh, yes, sir? The fruit of the Spirit. Okay, that's good, because that's like a practical expression of the Spirit in our lives, li- how the Spirit lives in and through us. Yes, sir? What's that? I think about worship God, Spirit, and truth. Worship God in Spirit and in truth. That's right. And uh, I think there, Spirit and truth just means that God wants us to worship him with genuine hearts, right, of worship. Dwelling of the Spirit. Amen. That's good. That's a subjective sort of, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yes, sir? Okay, so inspired by the Spirit of God, right? What's well, the same Peter, right? Men were moved along by the Spirit, carried along by the Spirit. Brian? Uh, creation. creation. That's very good. So the Spirit as creator. That's actually really important. Yes, sir? Romans chapter 8, right? The Spirit intercedes for us, uh, Romans 8, 26 and 27. Uh, that's right. Yes, sir. Sanctification. 
Sanctification. Okay, good. Everyone's like, is, are we not hitting on what he's thinking? <laughs> What's left? It's like we've hit the whole realm of pneumatology, huh? Yeah, regenerate. That's right. We're regenerated by the Spirit of God, born again by the Spirit of God. What if I told you that the most important aspect of it, well, maybe that's an overstatement, or I don't mean to neglect other aspects of the Spirit, but what if I told you that one really critical uh, and uh, 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 really important concept relating to the Spirit? Eschatology. The spi- did somebody say, uh, some of you guys mentioned that? Is that what you, oh, I thought thought you said that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, because eschatology is typically not where we go in our minds when we think about the spirit. Uh, We think about, you know, everything that we talk about right now. And really, if we're honest with ourselves, when we think about the the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, usually we kind of shift into a polemical mode, right? We're right away defending the spirit, right? Either... We're defending the deity of the Spirit, or we're arguing about the gifts of the Spirit, or, you know, something like that, right? And, and what that has resulted in, in the history of the church, as every book that I have on the Spirit usually starts out, uh, at least uh, in their introduction, they usually start out talking about how neglected the Spirit is, that the Spirit is one of the, you know, is the member of the Godhead that is the most neglected. People shy away from the Spirit because, you know, the gifts of the Spirit are controversial and then we don't understand the Spirit, you know, and all of that. Uh, But eschatology is going to prove to be very crucial for the Spirit uh, in our theology, and it really is kind of my burden uh, to help us to see how is it and why is it that the Spirit and eschatology go together. Uh, but when we're talking about eschatology, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the end times? When, he, when you say end times, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about like timelines and prophecies and, you know, Jack Van Impe and Hal Lin- You guys are too young to know about Jack Van Impe, huh? The return of Christ. That's right. So you're already thinking in terms of some sort of uh, segment of cosmic eschatology. What other aspect of eschatology is there? So, uh, cosmic <laughs> eschatology means what? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, cosmic, you, it's kind of like the end of the world, <laughs> right? What other aspects of eschatology are there? Anybody? Personal, that's right. Well, that's very good. That's right. There's personal. What is that talking about, Chris? Well, especially with eschatology, when you're talking about personal eschatology, you're main, mainly dealing with glorification. Yeah, glor- personal glorification or death, right? And when you enter into the intermediate intermediate period of time, you know, between death and the resurrection. So, yeah, that's right. And and so this is interesting too. But but eschatology also has to do with um, what we can call the supernal realm and that's why i wrote that up there because like what is that word right this is 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 this helpful by the way to put terms up here that you guys can write down and understand and ask questions about what is the supernal realm referring to anybody want to take a stab at that anyone yes sir you better know (laughs) now k-dub's been reading meredith klein uh quite heavily and so you know i'm gonna expect a lot out of him (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, heavenly. It's, it's, it refers to the heavenly realities or the heavenly realms. Uh, it's kind of, you can't pigeonhole it in terms of referring to just one thing, but it's an overarching concept that speaks about the heavenly things, right? the heavenly realities, right? the kingdom of heaven, the celestial glory of God in heaven, the angelic hosts that dwell in heaven, you know, those kinds of things. That's what theologians use that term Four and so in one sense it's like the supernal spirit of God, you know. So so uh, I would even go so far as to say that the spirit is pure eschatology. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? T- let's turn in our Bibles because we're supposed to be studying the Bible, uh, and I'm supposed to be looking at my notes. Uh, let's see here. See this thing, the man. I'm telling you, technology and I, we just don't. We don't mix. Um, let's see here. 
Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. When I say that the Spirit is pure eschatology, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to understand and trying to develop this because what I mean by that is that the Spirit, in a sense, everywhere He appears only operates upon the supernal realm or in the supernal realm or based on the, the glory of God or, or the heavenly things or eschatology. Look at uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, you know this. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. <laughs> right? So automatically we have a theophany where the heavens are literally opened. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descended. Descended from where? From heaven. Out of heaven, I guess we can say. Upon him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And so when I say that, that, uh, that the Spirit is pure eschatology, what, what I'm talking about is another term, and that is intrusion. You've heard me talk about that a lot. To me, I am fascinated by this. I am fascinated by the concept that in Scripture, what we have periodically throughout the, the, the history of redemption is we have a heavenly intrusion into the earthly realm. And so can anybody think of when that has transpired in the past? Uh, th- in other words, this baptism of Jesus is an intrusion from heaven to earth by the Spirit of God, breaking into time and space. It's like violating our laws and coming down unto us. Uh, as B.B. Warfield is uh, famous for saying, that a miracle, a miracle is, is, is when the natural laws are transcended and violated, but what violates our natural laws are not some sort of... Uh, lawless or you know haphazard sort of occurrence it's actually that a higher law is transcending a lower law and that is that a miracle obeys a higher system of laws mainly the laws of heaven right and so we don't have time to get into all that but what i'm saying is that where else do you see some sort of intrusion yes ma'am the burning bush that's right because the burning bush is just in league with other theophanies, right? And what is a theophany, Michelle? You got this. That's okay. That's that's definitely part of a theophany, right? So sometimes a theophany is when Christ in the Old Testament appears, like in the burning bush. Like where is Christ... With regards to the burning bush, how is Christ manifested there? Do you remember? <laughs> the angel of the Lord, right? Because uh, in Exodus 3 and in Acts uh, chapter, I think it's Acts chapter 7, the Stephen's sermon or his message, his whole biblical theology, it talks about how the angel spoke to Moses from the midst of the bush. So within the burning bush, there was the angel of the Lord, the Malach Elohim, who spoke with Moses. And we take that as a theophany. Or maybe you've heard of a different term, Michelle, and this, is, this would be more accurate to what you're thinking. Christophany. You ever heard of that term? Uh, Christophany is in some sort of Old Testament appearance, but only referring to Christ. So like uh, when Jacob wrestled the angel of the Lord, that would be a clear indication of a Christophany. Um, uh, So many, right? When uh, Abraham spoke with the angel of the Lord uh, right before uh, the Yahweh, it says in, uh, I had this debate with a Jewish woman in Israel. You guys remember that crazy Jewish lady that was following me around, was like stalking me? some, Some raving heretic lady just wouldn't leave me alone. Anyway, uh, we were debating that very thing. We were debating, you know, how is it possible that the angel of the Lord uh, on earth, I think it's in Genesis 19, why does the text call him Yahweh? And it says that he spoke to Yahweh in heaven. So how's that possible? How is Yahweh on earth and Yahweh in heaven? You know, it's just, you know, anyway, I don't want to go on with that conversation, but 
uh, it's because uh, the angel is a divine angel of the Lord, right? He is a Christophany. He is appearance of Christ. Yes. Yes, that would be the intrusion par excellence. <laughs> that's the big enchilada, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because what is a theophany and what is an intrusion? What is that doing for us? What is, uh, what's taking place there other than that God in some special way uh, is getting involved in our lives? Right? Like God is in some way personally present. And so in Christ and in the incarnation, we have the Emmanuel event. Right? We have God with us, you know, that He tabernacled with us, John 1 14. So uh, those kinds of things. Any questions? I, w- I want to go slow. I'm not in any rush. I was kind of debating this because I was like, if I go slow, uh, like I, for example, I'm not even. Um, I'm not even through my introduction here. Um, we, can, we can be here for 16 weeks, which I don't mind, but, you know, it's just a lot of work. Um, a- any questions at all? Any questions about any of these terms so far? No? Anyone? No dumb question, by the way, because I was thinking the reason, and I'm going to continue to do this, I think, as many times as I need to, but I just want everyone, like my, I'm not in a rush to get through this. I'm in a rush to get you to understand as much of it as possible. What good is it if I rush through my material, but you don't get it? Yes, sir? So would it be a theophany when the Lord is in the temple after calling him Moses? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Anytime. And, and how was he in the temple? Mm. Yeah, the glory. And is that glory ever visible? What is it? Smoke or cloud, right? And so here's another term that you need to know, glory cloud. Because the glory cloud is not only a popular podcast, but, <laughs> but this is Meredith Klein's term. I should put a little K right here next to Klein's terminology. Let's see, glory spirit, Klein, glory realm, Klein. These are terms that Klein uh, created um, and uh, 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 because this is what he's trying to suggest, that the glory cloud is a manifestation of the glory spirit. So in other words, sometimes when you want to see the spirit operating uh, in redemptive history, he often manifests himself through the glory cloud. And so the cloud and the Shekinah glory in the temple, the, 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 the cloud that hovered over the people in the Exodus, Right, the cloud that filled the temple in Isaiah's vision, Isaiah uh, chapter six, all sorts of different manifestations of the cloud of glory. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm. Mm. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, an intrusion, a, a theophany. Right, you have God sort of being spoken of there and anthropomorphic language walking around. You know what I mean? Yes? And some say well, that that's Jesus in some sort of pre-incarnate form walking. That was Robert Morey's position. Anybody know who Robert Morey is? He died uh, yesterday. Uh, Robert Morey had a profound... I was very sad yesterday to hear Robert Morey died. Robert Morey had a... I text James White. I said, Robert Morey died. He's like, Really? Couldn't believe it. Robert Morey, if you don't know anything about, about Robert Morey, is a very dangerous figure for me to even be talking about in one sense uh, ro- because Robert Morey was known for being very crass. Uh, it's like I didn't know Christians could curse until I met Robert Morey uh, <laughs> because he would from time to time say something like that. And uh, No, you can't curse. Don't look at your mom. You're not supposed to curse at all. <laughs> Pastor Miller's not teaching Christians can curse, and we're saying this gentleman... His brother, unfortunately, would curse from time to time, and he would cite Luther as his authority. <laughs> so he was like the Luther of our times. But Robert Morey uh, was a brilliant. I th- I, in many ways, Robert Morey was an evangelical tragedy because I never met a smarter man. Uh, I've talked to Robert Morey on several occasions. I used to go see him every Monday night, Hosanna Chapel in Downey, California, and uh, he had an, uh, have an apologetics night. He was, his m- sheer mental power was... 
uh, was really impressive. He had a photographic memory. I mean, he could just recall chapter, verse, page number, anything he'd, he'd studied be in, the f in, in the past. Uh, he graduated from Westminster. He, um, he wrote what I think is probably the best book on the Trinity uh, in terms from apologetics. If, if you want a book on apologetics and the Trinity, you want, you want Robert Morey's book. It's called The Trinity, uh, Evidence and Issues. And uh, that book is phenomenal, but he was so brilliant, but because on a personal level, he was so, <laughs> he was such a, he was such a brute beast at times, you know, he was a strange beast, <laughs> you know, people had a hard time wrapping their, their hands around him, and, and it's like you loved him, but you hated him kind of thing, you know, it's like a love-hate relationship, but, uh, you know, he was, he was, he was an amazing, amazing, even, you know, Dr. White told me, Robert Morey taught some great things, uh, three years ago, his wife tragically uh, drowned in a scuba diving accident on their anniversary off the Florida Keys. He went into a three-year depression uh, recently in recent months, uh, came out of that, and I think that probably contributed to his death. However, he died. I don't know exactly how he died, but I knew I would talk about Robert Morey somehow. Uh, but, uh, you know, people make an impact uh, in your life, don't they? Um, they, they, they just do, and uh, Robert Morey certainly made a huge impact on people's lives. Uh, let me, um, let's see, auto-lock. I'm trying to be like a techie up here. This thing's just shutting down on me every 10 seconds, so. Yeah, I know, I, I'm afraid of bringing him up here. <laughs> All right, let's talk about more of this. Um, the Spirit... It's pure eschatology. Why? Because he is the glory spirit, because he comes from the supernal realm, because he intrudes from heaven to earth, and the spirit operates on an eschatological principle uh, all the time. So the spirit is always thinking of the eschaton. So the spirit is always thinking about the eternal glory of God, the, the kingdom of God. He's thinking about the, the triune council of God. He's thinking, about, uh, he's thinking about the covenant of redemption. He's, you know, he's operating on that ground. Did I see a couple hands? Keith? Oh, yes, very much so. An intrusion. We're going to talk about that eventually, but uh, that's definitely a, uh, a major intrusion. Yes, anyone? What, what separates the third person of the Trinity from being pure eschatology from the other members of the Trinity, uh, the, the first and second members versus the third? What makes them more purely eschatological? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think in, in terms of uh, at least we can distinguish between the Son and the Spirit, whereas the Son comes into some sort of temporal existence, right? And he operates even on a temporal plane. He veils his glory and things like that, you know what I mean? And, and uh, he, he does things that are based on the economy of this world, <coughs> right? But the Spirit does not. He always transcends everything about this world in the way that he intrudes into the world. Yeah. Anybody? No? I see that hand. Yes, sir. Can you measure coming across the spirit temporarily and then going and operating in the realm of eschatology? Yeah. Does that simply mean that he is always moving? Uh -huh. Either not, I don't want to say time, but moving us and all other things, plans, etc., towards the eschatological goal. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's exactly right. You know, the spirit is always. Uh, he's always trying to move, you know, uh, redemptive history forward, you know, from an eschatological point of view. He's always, you know, he's always bringing uh, the reality of the kingdom of God into this world, you know, and it's always operating on that world. And so we'll see this, like, for example, when we think about um, the, uh, the prophecies, uh, even in the New Testament, it's like when the Spirit speaks through these prophecies in the New Testament, he, when he speaks, it's always this, you know, very mature, comprehensive theology of who Christ is. Uh, it's not like piecemeal, little by little, right, little segments of who he is. It's just a full declaration of the entirety of his identity as the, the king, the Lord of heaven, you know, the son of God. You know, I mean, he's very 
uh, mature in the way that he uh, interacts with this. So uh, let me just talk a little bit about uh, how we're going to approach uh, a lot of these things. Uh, I want to look at um, the spirit of Christ, the spirit and Christ, but I don't want to do it in terms of systematics, uh, systematic theology. I'm not going to necessarily dive us into a debate on the hypostatic union and things like that. We'll deal with it if we have to, but but it, it's so it's so easy for us to slip into systematic theology where all it is is just a bunch of data entry, right? We're just collecting all these verses that deal with uh, and defend uh, some doctrine of systematic theology. That's good. That's that's right. That's that's what we should do uh, when we do systematic theology. But this is a little bit more of I guess it'd be more of biblical theology. Um, what is biblical theology? What's that? That's a good. That's a good. Um, that's a good part of it. An unfolding of God's revelation. That's very Vossian, right? It was Gerhardus Voss that his biblical theology was all about. How does revelation unfold little by little, uh, and what is necessary in order for revelation to unfold throughout time? Uh, how, what does that look like? And so he deals with theophanies. He deals with the angel of the Lord. He deals with early prophetism. He deals with all that stuff uh, and how that advanced the purpose of revelation. What else is biblical theology? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Organizing the, the verses from systematic theology in such a way that they become Christology for Christology. Mm. It's a very sophisticated way of saying it. Uh, but I think you're right. I think what biblical theology does, the way that it helps us interpret the Bible is that unlike systematic theology that just takes a verse because it may contain a word in it, you know what I mean? Like it might have the vocabulary you're looking for and so you use it and you quote it. But systematic theology hardly ever gives you the context of that verse and tells you what is the thought process behind where that verse came from. And why is that verse there? So it's almost like biblical theology, in one sense, is doing theology the way the Bible naturally unfolds and naturally reads, you see? And so if you're quoting something in the New Testament about the Messiah and the Spirit, let's say, biblical theology would help us in that. It would say, see, this is like going back to Malachi, right? Because Malachi says in Malachi chapter uh, 3, that uh, the Lord will suddenly appear in his temple. And so now you have a reference here in the New Testament to Jesus appearing in the temple. And so that's how the story of redemption has reached this point. You see what I'm saying? So it's always kind of regurgitating the story. You want, if you want like, well, yeah, but what does all this biblical theology come from? Just read Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is, and I've, I've lamented this for a long time, that there's not enough work that has been done on this subject. And that is that uh, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, gives us a comprehensive biblical theology uh, and how it all unfolds and how it all points to Christ. And so uh, true biblical theology is Christocentric. Yes, ma'am? Uh, it, it, there is a chronology to it because we're obviously following redemptive history. And so... It's chronological only in the degree that it has something to do uh, with uh, chronology. So like if you're trying to understand what's the reason, you know, like what's the purpose of the Exodus, right? The purpose of the Exodus is going to be fulfilled in Canaan, you know, as the people take possession of the land of promise. And so you have to kind of always follow history. So, yeah, there's always a chronology involved. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. That's exactly right, and that's in uh, Luke 24, right? Luke 24, 26, and 27, that's where Jesus said, you know, oh, foolish men, you know, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets said concerning me, right? That the Christ was supposed to suffer before he entered into his glory. And so, and then, that's where he says, you know, and then beginning with Moses. So where does Moses begin? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, <laughs> right? I mean, if we believe a conservative evangelical authorship of the Pentateuch, Moses begins in Genesis 1, 1. And so beginning with Genesis 1, 1, Jesus unfolded the whole plan leading up and culminating in himself. 
Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Right. Just uh, something I'm working on right now, just to add to that, it's like you see Moses, right, after the Exodus, and they're at Sinai, and God says, you know, uh, you have to appoint 70 people to help Moses, because he can't do the work on his, by himself, it's too much for him. And then you have this episode where the 70, it says, God says, I will take the spirit that I've put upon Moses, and I will put it upon you. And then you get this concept of the 70 coming to minister before the Lord. And then, very shortly after that, it kind of drops off, and there they go. It's like, what was that about the 70? What was, like, what was the purpose of that in the narrative? Because we went on to greater and better things. You know what I'm saying? And so, but the trick of biblical theology is always to kind of try to figure out what is this story, or how does this story contribute to the overall plot of Scripture? Why is this here, and how does this maybe prefigure something more significant or point to something greater, you know, and what theologians are saying is that the 70 was a precursor to the 70 that Jesus sent out in his, in, in the power of, his, of the Spirit uh, in his ministry as the second Moses, right? So anyway, that's, an, uh, I know I'm just like, whoa, you know, but that's, that's where theologians are going. Any questions? What's that? It's good, right? Yeah, there's no question that Jesus is another Moses, right? That he is the, the a greater Moses. How does Jesus put it, right? He says, you know, something greater than the temple is here. Someone greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the prophets is here, right? So somebody even greater than Moses is here. And who is it? It's the long-expected prophet that we find in the narratives all the time. So systematics uh, has its limitation. Also covenant theology, um, you know, is also important, but... In one sense, guys, it's kind of like, let's, let's go here, covenant, <sighs> a covenant and eschatology, uh, you can make a case that the whole Bible is really about covenants. Uh, now, let me leave it like that because I want to put something else there. Um, it's about covenants and eschatology, but covenant theology uh, is also very important. For example... Everything that we look at in terms of the Spirit and Christ. Christ and the Spirit. How do I have it in my notes? The Spirit of Christ. Everything that we look in terms of the relationship between Christ and the Spirit in the ministry of Christ is owing to covenant theology, and it goes back to the eternal covenant of redemption. So let's get into some texts. Let's go to Isaiah 42. Or no, I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, which is huge, huge, huge for our pneumatology and our understanding of this precise subject matter. By the way, if you want to get a book on this exact subject matter, it's very scant. You will labor to find a book that emphasizes the relationship of the Spirit and Christ in the ministry of Christ. It's very limited. Brother, did you bring that book? Or did you forget it? You did? You bring it? He, he found, he's got a book that says it almost exactly like it, but I want to see like what, what they're talking about uh, in that book. But it's very limited. We, we have a lot of stuff that teaches us about father and son, father and son, father and son, but very few stuff that teaches us about spirit and son, spirit and son, spirit. It's very, very uh, limited. You have to go to the commentaries and do the work yourself. Where are we at? Verse, six, verse 16. Um, K.W., you want to read that for us?
from the time it took place, I was there. Now mm. the Lord God has sent me mm. and his spirit. Mm. So y'all's homework. We need a bigger board, man. Is Isaiah 48, 16. To go and study that out, uh, because I'm not going to do justice to it today. Um, who's talking? That's the big question here. When it says that the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Well, that's an easy way out, Wally. Just to throw it, just to say Jesus. Yeah, that's like cheating. We know it's Jesus, but don't steal my thunder. How do we get there? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. And there's all these Asianic passages, okay, one through seven, that are going to deal with this, Isaiah 42, one through uh uh, three, uh, there's all these Isaiah passages and also Isaiah 11, one through four. There's all these passages that refer to some sort of relationship between. Uh, if we're thinking about the book of Isaiah, and let me tell you, the book of Isaiah on this subject is huge. I mean, this is like the book in the Old Testament. I would say the, I would say that the the biggest, or the, the best, I, I can't say the best, but the most messianic theology <laughs> per capita, I guess, comes from Isaiah. That's no surprise, because we have, beginning in chapter 40 of Isaiah, going all the way, I mean, all the way, I mean, obviously you know Isaiah 53. Who's Isaiah 53 about? The servant. And the servant is who is speaking here, I believe. That's my position. There's this enigmatic shift uh, in the text where it's like the Lord is talking, but it's not the Lord because it can't be the Lord talking. Yahweh cannot be the Lord. And in that sense, from a Trinitarian perspective, it cannot be the Father because the Lord is sending someone. And so the one that was sent was not the Father. The one that was sent, obviously, was the Son. And in Isaiah's uh, terminology, it is the servant. It is the servant of the Lord. Especially if you look at the next, um, the next, uh, the, the, the context in chapter 49, verses 1 through 7, it's all about what God is going to do through the servant and how he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But that servant is introduced, if you go back to chapter 42, all the way back there. So all the way, chapter 42, all the way to 48, there's, or excuse me, yeah, 48, there's almost nothing about the servant, and then this language reemerges again, this enigmatic figure, this shadowy figure that emerges on the pages of Isaiah's uh, prophecy. But if you look at Isaiah 42, it says that, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so Automatically, right there, you have this, uh, this reference to the servant. Now, the servant theology in Isaiah is extremely complicated because there's a sense in which the servant takes on almost like corporate dimensions. It could be referring to the whole nation, but it's got to be referring to something greater than that. And so what theologians have basically concluded is that what Israel was on a corporate level, Jesus, the Messiah, the servant Messiah, will be on an individual messianic level. And so... Uh, uh, this is the way that it, uh, it's always written. You know what I mean? Yes, sir? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it even says that. It yeah, says it's, it's, Yahweh. it's Yahweh, but it's usually rendered Lord. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why they go back and forth. I haven't looked at it that deeply. Uh, but it's probably because of the compound, Lord God. So they have to distinguish, you know, so not to be repetitive. It won't be Yahweh, Yahweh, right? But 
Lord Adonai or Lord Elohim or something like that, different combinations. But, um, but still, uh, uh, no doubt the Lord is sending somebody other than himself. And no doubt that someone is also distinguished from the Spirit. And so we have the Lord, the one he sends, and the Spirit who accompanies him. You see? And so, any questions, comments, statements, anything? Um, yeah. Pneumatology, uh, so important, you guys. Um, I'm just trying to see. Okay, so let's turn to Luke chapter uh, 4. Luke chapter 4, because we're, we're looking at the ministry of, of Christ, and we're going to look at a bunch of different things, but... You know, Jesus was fully conscious. He was fully conscious of, of all of this. He totally understood, right, who he was. Uh, it's a liberal idea that crept up in, I don't know, the 19th century and, and prior to that, that asserted concepts like that Jesus did not have self-awareness, that he didn't know he was the Messiah, that he discovered that he was the Messiah, things like that. That's... Uh, I don't like that, you know, because that takes away from, you know, clear statements that he makes like this, you know, in Isaiah, or excuse me, Luke chapter uh, 4, where he quotes Isaiah, verse 18. Uh, You guys know this. Uh, I guess we can go beginning of verse 14. See this? We're not going to touch the temptation yet. But after the temptation, it says Jesus returned to Galilee. Watch this. In the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up and read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Boy, I wish I could have been there for that. Um. Yeah, because we actually visited the synagogue where this happened in Capernaum. You guys remember? And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, here's a question for you guys. What's going on here? What's... What is, this, what is Isaiah talking about? Well, Luke is, Jesus is obviously quoting this to himself. But in the language of proclamation, he has proclaimed. He will recover. He will set free. He will proclaim the favorable year. You guys know what that language goes back to? Anybody? This is a tough one. Yeah. Correct. Wow. Don't mess with Michelle. The year of Jubilee, right? The, ju- the year of Jubilee, which is Leviticus chapter 25, beginning of verse 10 and following, they talk about uh, releasing, you know, the captives and proclaiming liberty. You see that? And so this becomes extremely important for eschatology, uh, eschatology that's going to be infected in Daniel and Ezekiel and the, all over the prophets. It's going to be that the Messiah brings about the long-awaited jubilee right the great release where all our debts are let go it's kind of like so the year of jubilee was kind of a prefigure for the redemptive jubilee that christ would bring same thing as the sabbath it's like the sabbath was just prefiguring the eternal sabbath rest of god's people and the sabbath rest that we find in christ so the sabbath and the year of jubilee they're both mentioned in the same chapter and they both refer prophetically to what jesus would do redemptively this is why, like, the Sabbath debate among Christians is really silly, in my opinion, because the Sabbath doesn't just point to the day that you rest, but the way that you rest. You see that? It's not that the New Covenant is continuing some sort of civic, some sort of forensic or legal type of uh, binding legislation on one day. It's far greater than that, right? It's redemptive now. Any questions about any of that? It's a lot of that. Yeah. Do you believe there's 
Um, wisdom and stature. Um, yeah, I would have to say yes, because I think he knew that God was his father, and he knew that he was, uh, I think he knew that he was the son of God as depicted in the law, and in the word of, basically in the word of God, because even from the earliest times, as early as Christ could formulate cognitive thought, it appears, uh, even at a young adolescent stage, he's already in the temple wiser than the teachers of Israel. <laughs> so he had a better messianic theology than they did. But I think, yeah, but I think that those, right, but I think that those early years of Christ, there's a reason why we don't have a lot of info, because I don't think we're supposed to know all the intricacies of precisely how much he knew at certain stages of adolescent development. I think we're supposed to just leave it at, you know, by the time he was old enough to know the law, understand the law, he knew that it was spoken, that it spoke of him. So, yeah. yeah. That's a different, that's a tough one, though. So, anybody else want to speak to that? I don't want to claim. Yeah. That's right. Hmm? Or he knew as much as a baby could know, right? He knew as much as a baby could know. Other than that, he was a son of God, and I'm not. Ah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, yeah. There's a sense in which he grew into a, the understanding. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Right. Yeah, fully human. We 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 uh, we don't discount his divinity, which he absolutely cannot relate to. Mm. But we discount his humanity all the time. Last week, my sometimes he could get into Jesus. Right. Of course he could. Yeah. Maybe we don't know. Right. But of course he could. He was fully. Uh huh. And I think we discount his humanity when we probe those kinds of questions. We should. Well, we shouldn't question anything about Christ, but yes, but John, here's the thing is that throughout the history of the church, right, it's, it's kind of a false dichotomy because both of the natures of Christ are controversial for a reason, because on the one hand, his humanity, we, even though we don't want to question his humanity, uh, what exactly do we believe about his humanity? Because in no way whatsoever can his humanity be tainted by sin, for example, and so then we have to ask the question, how, how do we maintain the impeccability of Christ at the same time sustain the humanity of Christ? So it's controversial, but that doesn't mean we can't, uh, that we can't ask questions about it or we can't study it out. You know? But, you know, so I, I, I think ultimately, you know, that's what I'm saying, like Scripture, you know, at times presents us with mysteries that we just can't understand. Like the hypostatic union is a mystery we just can't understand. We just have to confess fully God, fully man, and leave it at that, you know what I mean, so to some level. Yeah, some things. Yeah, some things. Yeah, of course. Yep. Yeah, no question about that. Yeah, 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 it's... Yeah, you know, you don't want to... I'm learning from Eden not to underestimate how much kids can know from an early age. No, I mean, Eden's two, and she's already memorized half of the Greek alphabet and can recite alphabet, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta. You know, it's unbelievable. At two years old, you know what I mean? So I hope to be teaching her Greek by three. <laughs> she's going she's gonna to start putting pressure on me here real soon, you know. But I'm just tempted. To, what I'm saying is that it's amazing, like, how much a child can know, you know what I mean? 
Like, I don't even know how many stories of the Bible Eden can recite, but they're a lot. Like, she can recite the Joseph story, the coat of many colors, and how they threw this. We asked her, what did the brothers do with them? They sold him. That's what she says. Like, how does she know that? It's two years old. You know what I mean? So how much can an infant really know? Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that, you know, Jesus, <laughs> you know, had some abnormal, you know, human knowledge. No, or, or else he wouldn't have been human. But, you know, understand. It's difficult. It's a lot. There's a lot there. Um Yeah, well, that was part of his, yeah. Sure, and his, of course not, his human mind did not, and that's part of the, that's part of the whole kenosis. Uh, yeah, but let me, let me just say something <laughs> to that, John, because you're right, but that's part of the hypostatic union is that, by becoming a man, right, he laid aside certain independent uses of his divine attributes. You see what I'm saying? So that is not a mystery to us. That, But the reason why he did not know Handel's Messiah is because he chose to lay aside uh, the attribute, uh, the independent use of his attribute of omniscience in his human mind. You're burning to say something, and we're burning to finish. Yeah. Yeah. He's impeccable. Yeah. So so as much as sin would have limited him epistemically, right, his mind and his thinking, he had no noetic effects of the fall. So it did not affect his mind in any way whatsoever. But whatever we say about the human mind of Jesus, we cannot uh, we cannot turn the humanity of Christ into the divinity of Christ or else he ceases to be human. So that's why the caution is to profess the hypostatic union even if you don't understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> You're, yeah. Good, write it down. We'll work on it next week. <laughs> 